Well, if you have your Bibles, we can go together to uh, the book of Ezra. And when I invite you there, what I'm going to do is just invite you to go to the title page, because I don't know that I'm going to steer you to very many pages beyond that. Book of Ezra. You know, in his book, There Will Be Fire, uh, Rory Carroll, the author, writes about the Brighton City bombing, which happened back in the 1980s, which IRA terrorists made a point to try to kill and assassinate Margaret Thatcher, who was then the prime minister of Great Britain. And so in their effort, they came pretty close. They did it through a time delay bomb that went off about six days after the terrorists had been in the room. So it was very difficult to track and to find this individual who did it. Miraculously, it took about eight months. But after eight months, the uh, British uh, police force and security forces finally made a determination of who it was. And the way they found it was they found that it was part of the check-in cards, because this is the day before you did everything on computer. The terrorist had accidentally, with his hand, bumped a part of a page with the side of his hand. And that provided enough of a handprint that then the authorities could take that, do their chemical analysis on it, and then start doing a what they call a 16-point check, where they look at various prints from people that they knew were criminals. And again, it took them eight months to figure out who it was, a fellow named Patrick McGee, who had been part of the IRA and had done bombings previously before. Um, and eventually they did, in fact, catch that guy. But man, what an arduous process. And, you know, I mention all that because it's kind of like you can't get out of a massive historical event like that and come out unnoticed. Somebody is going to try to find some means by which they can see and learn something about you. Just like when you have a fingerprint, it's going to project your ID out there. Folks are going to get a sense as to who you are. And that's exactly what happened in this instance. My goodness, just these past few days, we had uh, some grandchildren over at the house. Every window that's this high and lower has fingerprints, handprints, nose prints, lip prints, and tongue prints on it. And as a result, you, you, they've come in, and what have they done? They've let their presence be known. They've, 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 they've made it clear that we were here. And there's a little sign that we were here passed on to all of us. Well, as it is with whether it's bombings or whether it's just children visiting, so it is in ministry too. God loves to work through others. And as he works through them, he allows his ministry to sort of carry their fingerprints into the ministry and what they will communicate and what they will do. Today, as we conclude our book on Ezra, uh, we finished the last chapter last week, but uh, what I want to do is just sort of do an overhaul, a big-picture analysis of it to find sort of Ezra's fingerprints and how they're meant to impact our lives as a result of looking at this book. So the Holy Spirit used that man's life, and he used his ministry for a number of years and his writings to impact not just the people in that day, but all of us today, even until the Lord returns. And so what we're going to do is kind of like a fingerprint. We're going to look at various points, uh, various parts of his signature, of his ministry that he leaves for us and key ideas. Because remember, we took about 10 weeks to go through this with about three or four different pastors and teachers, as we've done so, going through chapter by chapter, looking at it in its parts. And one of the dangers of looking at it in its parts is at the end, everyone walks away with 12 baskets of fragments, but they don't really have an idea as to what's the big picture here and what's going on. And so I want to leave you today with five key marks that Ezra leaves us in this book so that every single time you pick it up in the future, and when you begin to read it again, what we've looked at isn't necessarily lost on you. You can read this book and kind of, again, get an overview as to what is its purpose? What, how is it meant to touch and affect my life with the ideas being presented? 
So if you have a paper Bible, can I humbly challenge you? Take it to the title page and maybe write these five points on the title page. Again, so when you pick the Bible open and you're getting ready to read it, you can just sort of look over these points. If you have a digital Bible, uh, it's pretty easy usually to just make an annotation, a note there, so that every time you pick up your Bible, you can tap that note and you'll have access as a remembrance of what this book is about. Let's not let the last 10 weeks be lost because we just moved on to something else. What are Ezra's fingerprints meant to leave as a mark on our hearts today? Here's the first mark. I think Ezra wants you to find comfort in the sovereignty of God with this world. To find comfort in the sovereignty of God with this world. Because Ezra made a point to show us not just one, but he showed us two key world pagan leaders. Rulers of nations who did not know God. They did not worship him as the one true God. And yet, God purposed to use those leaders in his plans. And so the leaders, they didn't do something that earned the favor of God. They didn't accomplish some great work. God just decided, these are the leaders I'm going to use, and I'm going to begin my work. God had a plan, and he would accomplish his will. And we're reminded of this in other places of Scripture as well. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. So God can use leaders, and God can use governments. Are you ready for this? Even ungodly ones to accomplish his will and his purpose. First six chapters of this book, we saw Cyrus. Cyrus basically looked at the Jews and said, y'all want to go back to your homeland? They said, that'd be nice. He said, great, you go back. And he funded it, and he took the articles from the temple that his people, his ancestors, had captured once before and gave it back to the Jews and said, take it all and go back and worship. The last four chapters, you've got a guy named Artaxerxes who's told to go back. And he, or he tells the people to go back, and then he also provides them with materials and funds, and he takes care of everything to send them on their way. So God had determined a time for Israel to go into exile, and he determined a time when they were going to come out of exile, when it's time to go back and return. And so this signature theme from Ezra, it's not just his. It's consistent within the Bible. I don't know if you all remember a guy named uh, Pharaoh. Yeah? And God took Pharaoh. And even though Pharaoh hardened his heart, even though Pharaoh thought he was a god, God said, no, I can use this guy. In fact, I can even use his hardness of heart to exalt myself and conduct my plan. Exodus 9 says this about Pharaoh. Indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you, Pharaoh, I've allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. You all remember a guy named Nebuchadnezzar in your Bible? And God used him and broke him, but used him to accomplish his will as well. And the early church, I think the early church also understood this same principle, even in the New Testament. Because we discover that in a prayer by the, the saints when they ran into a difficulty, this is how they opened up. They said about the pagan leaders that we were gathered, they were, these leaders were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So folks, when we get this, when we see this, I hope you don't walk away and just let this be some academic exercise, right? Check, leaders, God's sovereign, check, I got it. Um, you have to remember, 
no matter who the leader is, no matter who the president of the United States is, no matter who the dictator of another country is, God's ultimate plans will not be thwarted. Do you really believe that? Well, you have to, because that's what the Bible teaches. You don't have to recoil just because the world is in turmoil, because it's always going to be in turmoil. I want to give you a reminder of something. We're about to enter into an election year. I noticed nobody said amen on that. No, because we remember what 2020 was like, and 2024 is just projected to be that on steroids. And it's going to be some of the same characters that we're going to have to go through and watch as this whole process unfolds. And to be very candid, a whole lot of Christians freaked out over this in 2020. It was kind of, it was, it was not our best moment. We freaked out over this. We got worried about so many things that, frankly, we couldn't do anything about. It was outside of our power. And so what did we do? We just fret and we worried and we complained. And that was it. And a lot of things are still rough out there. Xi Jinping, I mean, he's got the long view in mind with China. And we look at that guy and his nation and country, and we're leery of what he has and what he's doing. Uh, we've got Putin, who's basically running a mafia government over there in Russia and kind of doing whatever he wants. And it makes us nervous when we look on, causing us problems. And you've got Hamas and Hezbollah, and you've got Iran. All these things going on in the news. So first of all, let's just remember something. This ain't new. This is not new. This past week, we remembered the 60th anniversary of the JFK assassination. I read this great quote recently. It said this, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often does rhyme. And there's a lot of truth to that. You won't find circumstances being exactly the same, but you see the rhyme that continues to happening. There is nothing new under the sun. For those of you on the little bit on the younger end of the spectrum, let me just speak to you for a moment. Back in 1989, a uh, musician named Billy Joel wrote a song. And it goes like this, we didn't start the fire. Let me just give you a couple lines from it. He says, Hemingway, Eichmann, stranger in a strange land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania, Ole Miss John Glenn, Liston Beats Patterson, Pope Paul, Malcolm X, British politician sex, JFK blown away, what else do I have to say? There's nothing new under the sun. The same kinds of things continue to happen. And yet in that song, here's this guy who, the best of my knowledge, does not worship God. And he gave one of the greatest theological statements as a result of it. And he made this comment. He says, we didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. The only thing I would correct is I think I might change the last bit in Genesis 3. It just doesn't rhyme. So we have to come up with something else. Um, by the way, let me just insert a little something here. Uh, when I'm talking about this, and I'm talking about these different things that are going on in the world. Let me just say this. I'm thankful for a whole lot of you that are involved in these positions, whether they're in computers or whether they're in government or whether they're in cyber or whether they're in security or whatever it is. I'm thankful you're on our side and we've got you. Um, helping to stave off evil regimes, being in this battle against evil that is occurring out there. Trusting in the sovereignty of God means that we've got to trust him with the oversight as well as the outcome. And so that means we have to still do what we can, but we can't freak out and fret over this. We're going to have to trust God in the process. So trusting in the sovereignty of God 
Don't hear this one saying that we can just throw our hands in the air and say, yeah, whatever. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that and just quit. Even Billy Joel in the same song said, we didn't start the fire. We didn't light it, but we're trying to fight it. And there's a lot of truth to that. And both Ezra and Zerubbabel sought to fight it too. They did. And they sought to make a difference where they could while trusting God that God ultimately was still steering the ship, even though it felt like it was listing pretty bad at times. So trusting in the sovereignty of God, it does not mean your vote doesn't matter. Trusting in the sovereignty of God does not mean that you shouldn't seek to influence people for what's true and what's right and what's good. We can and we should call out issues. We should vote on platforms. We should seek to influence governments. We should seek to call out sin when it's necessary. But here's what we're not going to do. We are not going to fret when leaders are not godly or they espouse ungodly ideals or say the wrong things or do evil things. Amen? We're not going to freak out over that. We're going to call them out? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we should. We're going to get a resolve about us? Absolutely. Are we going to fret and worry? No way. We cannot go down that route. And when you're tempted to fret over this year's events, when your social media platform starts going nuts and whipping you into a frenzy and you get all stirred up about legislations and acts of governments and they move you in a bad direction because they're going in a bad direction, sometimes this is a good book to come back to. Pull out the pages of Ezra. Start looking at how God used the ungodly leaders to accomplish his will. Men and women who didn't worship him. And God saw to it that his plan was definitely carried out. Because God is sovereign. I feel better. <laughs> and that's just the first point. <clears throat> the next one, Ezra leaves a mark on our hearts. To fight spiritual apathy by seeking a renewed heart. Fight apathy by seeking a renewed heart. The, and we saw this with the Jewish people. They went up and down in their zeal, didn't they? Sometimes they were high and then other times they were not. Uh, their excitement. They were high in their spiritual excitement. Sometimes they went low in it. We saw great potential in their walk, and we saw times where they, were, uh, where they wavered in their faith, and life could beat them down at times. They had the hurdles of opposition and the hurdles of apathy, and yet Ezra called them back to look up, put your eyes on God, get them off of everything else that's going around you, and find a renewed sense of purpose. Remembering, first of all, God brought you out of exile. I shouldn't forget that. And then when things got hard, he's like, no, 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 let's go back and remember some of the things God has done so that we then can move on and build our faith for the things we haven't seen him do just yet. To remember, this is the God who loves you. This is the God who's purpose to care for you. And he has a purpose for you. So you stay true. So as the people sought to rebuild the temple, and they got slowed down at times. Sometimes it was with heavy opposition, other times minimal um, but they were reignited in their walk, and they followed God. People who had entered a lifestyle of sin, and God called them out. And as a result, through that conviction, they confessed, and then what did they do? They repented. They turned around. And then God said, that's the kind of people I'm going to continue to use. And he would, and he did. And it reminds me, it's kind of like, you know, every campfire, when you get around one, it eventually it is going to go out unless you purpose to get around that thing and you start stoking the fire and you stir the embers and you put another log in there, more fuel. And relationships are the same way, are they not? 
You got to stoke a relationship. You can't just let it sit idle. It goes out. You got to continue to do this kind of a thing with it. And it's the same thing with our spiritual relationship with God. You got to stoke it and you got to feed it. So we've got Ezra's imprint on this spiritual firewood. And if you're in a position where you're feeling kind of cold, then it's time for you to pick up the log of his word to begin with. Start here so that you can begin to hear what he has to say, much like Ezra did. And then watch as God works through you. And watch as God begins to reignite your passion and devotion and a sense of purpose that he has for you. So we live in a day and age where so much hangs on feelings, do they not? I mean, it's, it, it's kind of off the charts. I'll just give you the reminder that I've given you before. There is certainly a place for feelings in our lives. God's emotional. We should have emotions and we should have feelings. But feelings are always meant to be the caboose to the train. You are not to let them become the engine. Ezra's thumbprint is on the throttle of the engine. You know, it's like a little thumbprint up there on the throttle. I was kind of proud of that little bit of tech. <coughs> well, God wants your hand on the throttle too. The throttle that you can control, that of your will and purposing to reignite what you can and what you have with him. Third mark as relieves on our hearts. It's a little bit different. See in those genealogies, patience with the promises of God. Yes, those things have a purpose. Because I want you to remind you of something. Every time you read those list of names and you've got a generation recorded, you know what I'm reminded of? God knew every one of them by name. He didn't just, they weren't just some amorphous group of people. He knew them all as individuals. And God is about people, even to the point of recording their names. And generations were going to come and go in that lifetime. And each one would be living their lives in the course of history. You know, again, they become anonymous to us, even if we can read their name. We don't, we don't really see their face. I wonder how many of those people lived and died in a time where they didn't really see great works of God. They were just waiting, just waiting, and another generation, and another generation would come, wondering, is God at work? You think in the 70 years of exile, there had to have been people that were born in exile, and they died still in exile. They didn't get to see the deliverance at the end. But here's what they were, is they were faithful. As they were faithful, they believed that God was going to fulfill his promises over time, and it built their faith. And so they, along with the people they would invest in, the next generation, they continued to pour into them. They would see God continue to work as they lived their faith, and then they passed it on to others, even if they didn't necessarily get to see the promises in their generation. That reminds you of another fella in the Old Testament, a guy named Abraham, promised the land, and yet when he died, what did he own? Just enough to be buried in. That's it. But God had his promises that we're going to go through. And Ezra's genealogies, I think, are a trumpet. It's a reminder. These people, there's a call to be faithful. You're called to be faithful. And if you don't see things being fulfilled, hold on that God has his timetable. And he's going to work in and through it. And God sees and God remembers you when you're feeling anonymous when things don't feel like they're moving in a very fast-moving direction, he's still there. And if you feel like God might have forgotten you because in your generations, in a time frame, you're not seeing change in a good way, well, they had to remember to be ready when God surprised them. And it was time to move. 
and the doors did open, and good changes came, and there's people that had to be ready. And Ezra and Zerubbabel, they were, they were ready. And it should be the same with us. So when you see those lists of names, continue to remember that God remembered them, and God used them. So they might not have a, they might not have seen a big influence, but their steadiness is what God was going to use to usher in His promises. I liken it to kind of like rocks on water, and rocks are hard, but something even as soft as water in its steadiness and in its faithfulness of moving through can work its way and carve out a path. And so it should be in the steadiness of the saints. We're trusting that God is going to take that steadiness and that faithfulness and use us over time. Fourth mark, Ezra leaves on our hearts, and that is make the worship of God a priority in your life. Make the worship of God a priority in your life. In fact, the first six chapters of this book completely dealt with this. There was a work to be done, so the people were called to go back, build the temple, be ready to go where it is that God calls you to go, be ready to do what it is God has for you to do, be ready to do it in the way God calls you to do it, be ready for God to surprise you in the work that you're doing, and then the things that you didn't expect, to work to complete what God gives you. That's the call and the message, and that's all part of a life of worship and keeping God as that priority. It's kind of like striking a nail, you know? you got to keep striking the same nail over and over again, being persistent, and you watch it continue to drive. And so as we purpose to worship and to know God, that's how we get the depth of knowing who he is. And then the work that we will do, there's purpose behind it. We get it. Even if we don't see the fulfillment of what it is that we're aspiring to accomplish, we know that God will still work in and through us. And that's Ezra's mark, to know God. That's why he would study the word, to practice it, to then turn around and to pass it on to other people. He would be deliberate in teaching it. And then it was the purity of the people's worship. It wasn't their lip service. It wasn't even necessarily their actions, but it was a pure service. That's what Ezra called the people to. A mark he would leave for all of us to see where he had been, that we too might follow that example, and we too might be blessed. So worship as a priority. This is all about the heart, folks. It's not about the what. It's about the why. A heart bent not towards self-will, but a heart that is bent towards God's will. And this leads us to a natural flow into the fifth and the last final imprint or impact from Ezra. Ezra has a mark in our hearts to see obedience as the apex of our worship. Obedience as the apex of worship. These people got in the business of building a temple, coming back, getting their Levites together, doing the hard work of leaving their own homeland to go into a new land. And all of those deeds, as great as they are, can be simply undone with a heart that falters with God and seeks to do their own thing. So again, Ezra's not about what are you going to do for God. It's going to be about why you're going to do what you're going to do and then obeying God for the purposes of seeing him glorified. It's the prime act of worship in a person's life. You know, one of the best examples we have of this, we go back to the book of Samuel. Y'all remember when, um, when Saul conquered an enemy and he's told, destroy everything, but he doesn't. He gets real intellectual about it and efficient about it. And so he keeps a number of the animals and brings them back. And when Samuel says, what, what's going on? You were told to get rid of all these things. He goes, oh, no, wait a minute. We have some pretty awesome sacrifices here. 
I was just thinking, maybe this would be a good plan, and we can go down this path. And you remember what Samuel said? To obey is better than sacrifice. This isn't good. God's call is that we would obey him. So the apex of worship, ladies and gentlemen, it ain't singing. It's not giving of your finances. The apex of worship isn't even purposing to listen to good sermons, doing something really hard that you think is hard for God and accomplish his will, or it isn't even a sacrifice. At the end of the day, all of those things are meant to fall under the umbrella of obedience. And that's how you demonstrate to God the ultimate act of worship. You hear what he says, and you do it. So Ezra showed us how the Jews... Here they did. They worked, and they finally did finish this temple. But then they started to, they didn't have priests that were complying with the word of God, and things kind of went awry in that end. And then they, they had all the best items to fill the tabernacle with, but then they began marrying other people that were not worshipers of God. And then the syncretism began to creep in. So we got all these works they could look at and say, but look at all this hard stuff we did. And God says, no, 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 no. It's not about how hard the work was that you did. It's about did you listen to me? Did you love me to seek to obey me? All of it was undermined when they became indifferent to their sin. And we can do this. I've done this. I bet you have too. Ezra calls them to a heart that's pure to say, my obedience is going to be the ultimate act of my worship of God. And that's it. Ten weeks plus one more sermon. Five ways Ezra leaves his mark, his fingerprints on our hearts that are timeless. And so while we can end this study somewhat on a good note, I think we have to remember we can't dismiss the fact that Ezra's book doesn't necessarily end on the best note, does it? Kind of leaves in, a, in a, dark, a dark moment and some things are undone. It reminds me a little bit whenever you uh, watch maybe a documentary about a problem. A good documentary is going to look at something. I don't care whether it's climate change or world hunger or nations and wars or issues regarding clean water or whatever it may happen to be. A documentary done right is going to have a purpose. They want you to enter into the story now. They want you to say, okay, I see what's happening. Now I'm going to enter in and I want to make things better. I want to fix things and seek to make it a change. I can't help but think that that may be a little bit of the reason why Ezra ends on less than an ideal note. Because it's at this point of the story, you're meant to enter in. You're meant to examine what's presented and then ask, will I be different? Will my heart, will my attitude, will my approach be different? Will I remain faithful? Will I see the prince that Ezra has left behind and then follow his lead and leave my own prince by the power of the Holy Spirit moving forward. Now, despite your best intention, all of us, I think while at times we can read something like that and we can get inspired by it, I think if you're like me, you leave a little bit nervous. Because when I look at people like this, I think, I don't know that I would do any better. In fact, if anything, I might be doing even worse than what a lot of these people did. And I don't know that I have the means and the power to do this and to live this way. And I think that's why the story has to continue beyond Ezra and go another 550 years where you have another individual who comes on and begins to walk on the earth. And this individual enters the scene who not only can live perfect, but he lives being perfectly faithful. And he doesn't falter. And he did not waver. But he would seek to live perfectly. That he might take our faults, our sins, remove them from us, 
in exchange for his perfect holiness. That man's name is Jesus, the God-man. And he did, he came to live what Ezra called the people to. He could do it. And so we don't have to merely see his prince to be inspired, though, because you have something else. The very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, to those who know Christ, that spirit comes to live inside of you to then enable you to walk in the fullness and the truth and and in obedience to the God that loves you. So when we look at these ways to live, God's going to call us to do it in accordance with his character revealed to us in his word. And now we can be the ones that go out. And God will take your thumb and leave a print somewhere on a life and make a difference because you're being faithful unto him as you go forward.